Hello there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up in the next hour, a giant of the Irish music landscape. We'll be joined this morning by celebrated composer Bill Whelan on the publication of his autobiography, The Road to Riverdance. Having worked with everyone from Kate Bush to Luke Kelly to U2, we'll reflect on his hugely successful musical career, the trials he met along the way and the terror felt on that now infamous Eurovision night. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything featured on the show. You can text us to 51551. You can email Miriam at rt.ie. You can tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Or you can find me on Instagram at instmiriam. Well, my guest sitting opposite me this morning is a giant of the Irish music landscape. One of our most famous and influential composers. His production and arranging credits include, among others, U2, Van Morrison and Kate Bush. His most famous work was, however, Riverdance, the music for which he composed, especially for the interval act of the 1994 Eurovision Song Contest. And in his newly published memoir, The Road to Riverdance, he recounts his early musical experiences right off to the world-famous cultural phenomenon that changed everything for him. Composer and producer Bill Whelan, good morning to you. Morning, Miriam. Thanks for coming up. Delighted you're here. Listen, your road to Riverdance began in 1950 in 18 Barrington Street in Limerick City. Tell me about your mum and dad and growing up there. Yeah, well, I was born at home for a start. I was actually born in 18 Barrington Street and um, I've met more people since then who were actually born next door to me. Because Barrington Street in those days was a collection of uh, doctors, surgeries and a lot of nursing homes. So all kinds of people came come up to me and say, you know, I was born next door to you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I, I grew up on the street. Um, it was quite a different environment in those days, you know. Um, the, the, the street itself, as I said, was very much kind of medically oriented. Um, although there were families living there. and um, But behind were the lanes and the McCourts lived uh, right behind us. In fact, I was with Maliki in New York last week and we were just reminiscing. You know, it's funny uh, how life in Limerick in those days, everybody knew everybody. And there wasn't the same kind of social barrier that, that sometimes exists you know, when town planning kind of ghettoizes people. Everybody lived beside everybody. So we went through the lane together uh, last week and, and named off all of the families right. that, that lived there. And he remembered them. I don't remember him because I was quite young when, the, when they left, when Frank and he left. Mm-hmm. But um, his, his uncle, Ab Sheehan, who's in Angela's Ashes, Ab lived there. He would have been uh, Angela's brother. And he lived in the lane and until he died, actually. And um, but that's all it's all different now. It's the, the lane has kind of vanished and it's, you know, very different. They, they knocked all the houses that were there. But it was lovely to grow up there. And we had a lot of kind of really, um, you know, I felt very close to to the essence of Limerick, of inner city Limerick, because it was right in the heart of the city. And then we had a shop which was about a mile away from the house. So our our life and my parents' life particularly really never went outside that orbit of the house to the shop and the shop to the house. And it was a newsagent shop. So it was open every day of the year except Christmas Day. And um, and it would open at seven and uh, it would run till 10 in the evening. And, uh, you know, because because it was newspapers, you had to be open, uh, you know, the Stephen's Day on St. Stephen's Day with the <laughs> racing. So you had to be there for the racing papers. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, again, that was another 
thing that I consider very much part of my formation was being in the shop, meeting people, meeting all kinds of strata of Limerick life and uh, and getting to know the character of, the, the, the unique character of Limerick. You know, every mm. city has its kind of character, if you like. And Limerick, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of humour which is, is particularly Limerick, and it's kind of slightly off-handed. There's a little, there's a slight nudge of uh, criticism in it, but it's also quite welcoming. Um, and uh, you know, they say in Limerick, you know, we don't let you get above yourself, like you know, <laughs> just keep keep in control there. So I I go back a lot. Um, I was involved with the university at the university project and the, the foundation, and uh, in fact, you know, we're just reminiscing recently. We marched on the streets in the 1960s for a university in Limerick mm-hmm. and got on a train, a whole bunch of students, the Limerick Students a University Project, um, hired a train and we all got into the train and went up to Dublin and we marched on uh, on the Department of Education and on the Doyle with our placards <clears throat> for a university for Limerick. And it's a real, it's fantastic to be there now and to see it, you know, that from those those early days and, you know, the influences of people like Donegal O'Malley uh, was Limerick man, Minister for Education, all of that, you know, how it grew into what is now a really superb university. And from my perspective, the superb uh, School of Music, which Michal O'Sullivan oh, yeah. set up, you know, the, Genius. the World Music Centre, yeah. You were an only child? I was, yeah. Um, my You're often very high achievers, aren't you? How did you find it? <laughs> um, well, people say to me, you know, only children actually have a great time. You get everything, you know, you get you get all the presents and everything. Yeah, you also get all of the discipline that should be spread around the rest of the <laughs> brothers and sisters. So, uh, yeah, it's... Um, I was not too conscious of being an only child until, until I kind of grew up um, and saw you know, the effect of families on on my colleagues and my parents also. You know, my dad was was 50 when I was born um, and my mother was 40, uh, you know. So my parents were older than everybody else's parents, it seemed to me. And I kind of became conscious of that. And, you know, while I didn't play football with my father or do any of those uh, sort of active things like that, and because the shop really ruled our lives, um, he did have a lot of hobbies which were highly influential for me. Like he, what? Well, first of all, <laughs> he he was really, really, really curious about music. Uh, he he played a little bit himself, but not, you know, he played the harmonica and he played, you know, bits on the piano. But my mother was a really, really fine pianist. Uh, so I grew up listening to a lot of music. But my father's particular interests were so wide when I think of it, you know, for a man who was born in 1901, you know, he's he was responsible for me hearing, you know, Duke Ellington, uh, Johnny Hodges, you know, Glenn Miller, um, and then opera and then traditional music. All of that came into the house. And he was he was fascinated by the technology and brought in, you know, when there was a new kind of record player, we we got it. I never knew how he paid for it. I mean, he, he was kind of inventive about how to pay for things. But uh, but we had them in the house. And so I grew up listening to a lot of varied music and really wasn't at all aware of the kind of, you know, the way music is, can be put into pigeonholes. So this is jazz and this is... I wasn't aware of that. It was all just music to me. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, my, then my mother would play 
uh, the piano, we'd have musical, not big, they weren't big social people because of the work. They didn't have the chance to do that. There's a sweet, funny story in the book about when your dad became an art collector. Remember, he'd been at the bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is a little example of his entrepreneurism. He, um, he apparently, the, the story my mother told me is that he went, he went down to the Munster and Leinster Bank, as it was, and there was a Sean Keating painting in a gallery in Limerick, and he fell in love with the Sean Keating painting, which was way outside his reach. So he went down to the bank and he asked the bank manager, could he borrow £400, which is a lot of money. Mm. And the bank manager said, oh, gee, he said, Dave, that's an awful lot of money. He said, what are you going to put £400? Are you, are you buying a car or something? He said, uh, no, no, no. He said, um, he was a bit stuck here now, so it's a quick invention. He said, well, the, the back of the house, there's a lot of um, <laughs> that we need, the shoots need to be fixed and a, a bit of plastering and we're having a few leaks and I want to get that done. I really want to plaster the whole back of the house and stuff. So he, they had a talk then about what was the likely income over the coming months and eventually they agreed. Um, he gave them the 400 quid. And that day, he closed up the bank at three o'clock and went for a walk down, as he did quite commonly, down Limerick Street, O'Connell Street, and in amongst the merchants and traders in Limerick and called in to see people. And one of his stops was the Goodwin Gallery. And he went into the Goodwin Gallery and he said to the gallery owner, he looked around and he said, oh, I see the uh, Sean, pa- Sean Keating painting is, is gone. And he said, yes, he has sold it this morning. Ah, go away, he said. And, uh, and what did it sell for? £400, the asking price. He said, oh, my God. He said, that was great. You got, oh, yeah, it was a lovely painting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, um, do you mind me asking you, who bought it? Dave Whelan. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there was the truth of where the 400 quid had gone. Mind you, he did plaster the back of the house himself. <laughs> Subsequently, but that was that was the way he, you know, he he loved paintings and he bought, he bought Keating and he bought uh, Frank McKelvey and he brought, uh, you know, uh, a big big favorite of his was a Limerick painter called Christy Dorn, and he had, you know, when my dad died, I I was inherited twenty four Christy Dorn paintings. Um, because they were buddies. And, and one day I came into the house and Christy Dorn was drawing a mural on the long hall of our uh, the basement. Mm. So he, he kind of supported Christy, you know, because they were, I think they, were, they used to row together. My father was a good oarsman and I think they used to row together. So, yeah, that was it. So films, he was also very, very strong on films and he himself and a, a Jesuit priest friend of his they actually built a little cinema in the house and he used to rent films from a company in Dublin and we'd show them at the weekend and they'd have to go back to the, the, the renting company after the weekend. So, you know, films, music, photography. He had a little dark room. He, 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 in fact, the, the front of the cover, cover of the book is a photo of my father and I on another of his hobbies, which was mo- a motorbike. And uh, that was one of the photos that he developed and uh, he didn't take the photograph, obviously, but he had somebody take it, but he developed it. So he did a lot of that developing and, and printing. And he built your first recording studio? He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, we, I, I plagued him. You know, we'd come across, you know, in my teens, I got really interested in the whole recording uh, process and, you know, where was I going to be able to make my demos and myself and my friend Niall Connery, <clears throat> and a few others were writing songs and we needed to demo the songs and 
So I convinced my dad that um, he we'd go down and talk to a guy called Jim Carroll, who was a, a hi-fi specialist in Limerick. <clears throat> and um, and uh, there was a, a machine called a Vortexian, which was quite a, you know, it was kind of cutting-edge technology at the time, reel-to-reel tape. And we bought a Vortexian and then converted the attic of my house um, by putting in Aeroboard as soundproofing and built a little control room. And there we made a lot of demos and we actually recorded a single for a, a group from Killaloo. Right. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, you know, I've often said about my father that his, his influence was enormous, but I didn't really, it's amazing when all these things are happening to you. You you th- you know you don't notice them when mm. they're happening, mm. and then then when your parent is gone, it's like you know he's slipped something into your pocket that you never noticed, and then it, there it is. You know, it was an extraordinary thing. And was yeah. your musical talent um, obvious? Say when you were in school. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think yeah, I think I was always to be found uh, playing the piano in the house or. Uh, I was very interested in rhythm, rhythm, and uh, you know, I would play. My father would play harmonica, and I would play the. Um, the my earliest memories are playing with two knives on a biscuit tin. Um, my father played tunes, and I would I would accompany him on the biscuit tin. I'm sure he was thrilled at the time. But anyway, um, so that was um, yeah. It, I, my my passion for music would have been quite visible. So. Um, then I, so I was sent to, there wasn't a, a music program in, I went to the Crescent College in Limerick and there wasn't a music program at the, in those days. So I was sent to a number of uh, music teachers over the years. And I learned piano, did the grades, learned piano, did played, learned violin actually, which was a pretty um, excruciating experience for both the teacher and myself. And we eventually parted, agreed to part, that the violin and I, whatever relationship we would have later in life, was going to end there and then. So, yeah, so I, I, um, I played piano. Then I played drums, because again, rhythm was, you know, and it's, you can probably, um, anyone listening to my music will see that rhythm and, and rhythmic complexity mm. is very much part of what I, what I excite. But you started think. off doing law. I mean, you actually did do law. I did, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I, I lined up in uh, in 1968 in UCD to register for the Bachelor of Civil Law degree because at that time, you know, my parents were very keen for me to get you know a proper career and get a proper job, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and um, you know, like a lot of parents. In that generation, they were really stuck on education, education, education. Mm. So they wanted me to have, you know, further education, even if I never used it. Um, you know, they wanted me to have the benefit of it. So yeah, so I registered for law, and it's, you know, you're too young to remember this now, Miriam. But um, you know, in the, in the sixties, you know, there was a kind of a much more casual attitude to students registering for things like it was, yeah. you know, and I sat in uh, on the registration day for law and the guy beside me who became one of my dearest friends over the many years since, you know, he registered for law uh, because he was late for medicine. 
Literally, just Literally, yeah. went from being a doctor to being yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, in a day. Uh, yeah. And but the flight that he'd gone to America to work and uh, for to pay for his fees and the flight the, in those days, the airlines were unregulated and the, and the airline went bust and uh, he had no flight <laughs> home. So he was late. <laughs> So he he then went on to shine at law as well. There you think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Actually, one of our listeners says he's Brendan from Miriam. Fantastic to hear Bill this morning. I was born in Glenworth Street, just around the corner Glenworth, from him. Yeah. But he never forgets Limerick. We're all so proud of him. One of our own. Now, listen, you met Denise, your wife, early on. Yeah. You're going to listen to a piece of music. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Well, this this is uh, down to the Vortexian tape recorder again. <laughs> I met Denise, uh, I was in college um, in 68 and sometime in the late later part of 68, I, I, I bumped into this guy uh, in, the, in the, the, the hallway of the Pembroke pub. We used to play music in the Pembroke pub, a bunch of us students. And I bumped into this guy in a dress suit with this stunning young woman with him. And he was actually Brendan Gleeson's brother. Wow. Yeah. And he was taking this young lady out to a dress dance and she smiled. And that was the first I saw of her. And um, and then I went back and <clears throat> found out a little bit more about her. And uh, and then by chance met her again in the following year, in February of uh, 1969. And um, I was kind of smitten and I, I went home and... Uh, I wrote a piece of music, a piece of instrumental music, which we recorded up in the attic on the Vortex Inn. <laughs> and I sent this to London. And, you know, I didn't really expect that much from, you know, because we wrote songs as well. Nada and I wrote songs. And I thought we'd, you know, I sent it away with a bunch of stuff, including songs and this. And the next thing I heard was Richard Harris wanted the music for his film, Bloomfield. And, um, like... I can't stress how incredible that was in Limerick in 1969 to suddenly be the composer of the theme music for a Richard Harris film. I mean, it was... It's amazing. You're only 19, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. Niall and I were taken to London to meet with the, uh, the whole Harris organisation and then Richard came to Kilkee and we went and we wrote songs together in Kilkee and, uh, and this ended up on the film, this this piece, which was originally written for Denise. Another great Limerick man. Yeah. Richard, yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you get on well? Did you like him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Richard was, yeah. I mean, I knew him in various of his um, incarnations. Um, and uh, uh, he was, you know, what really, like, I can't stress again how, how Harris's success, to me as a musician, Harris linked up with Jimmy Webb. Mm-hmm. And he made an album called A Tram Shining as a follow-up to a hit single, which was called MacArthur Park. And MacArthur Park was like seven minutes long. In fact, I got to know Jimmy Webb subsequently, and he often says, you know, we're the only guys who had seven-minute pieces of music <laughs> in the charts. And um, and MacArthur Park was, to, to me, it was just a stunning piece of music. I couldn't believe. Now, Richard would never have claimed to be a great singer, but he was a great actor singer. Mm. And um, and there he was uh, singing this thing that was revolutionary in many ways, you know, big use of orchestra. And I loved all that. I, I never wanted to be like, my ambition was always to be, 
you know, an, a writer, arranger, orchestrator, producer. I wanted to be, I didn't want to be out front. I wanted to be in the background making the music. Being well, and, look, and Harris Harris chose it. So then we were, that was it. It ended up as the score for the film. It's a gorgeous piece of music. And we're going to hear a little of that now. When you were 19, Bill Whelan, you composed this. It's called Denise. <laughs> piece of music and you wrote that Bill Whelan when you were 19 and Richard Harris of course used it as a recording as part of the soundtrack to a movie he was working on and then there was a great night in Limerick oh, wasn't there? There was yeah absolutely it was kind of major now it was, he ran he decided to premiere the film in Limerick uh, which was typical of Harris you know he was always kept a, a close tie to the city and um, and he uh, he, he ran the, the Lions Club in Limerick. He, he gave the running of the premiere to them and they took whatever profit it made. So it was done in the Savoy Cinema, which was at, the, at that stage a really superb uh, venue in Limerick. Like a, I think it was like a 13 or 1500 seater, beautiful theatre. Uh, it's not there anymore. And um, everybody came like, you know, it was it was a real glittering event and it kind of went on for several days, as you can <laughs> imagine, with Harris. Um, and it, it was out in, um, people were in Dirty Nellies and they were in Bunratty and stuff. And there was Lulu and um, there was Honor Blackman from the Bond films. Uh, there were the Bee Gees, you know, it was it was an extraordinary evening. And um and then the film flopped. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with your music. <laughs> no, of course not. No, the, the film didn't really take What was take it called? It was, first of all, it was called Bloomfield. And it, it went out for a while as Bloomfield. Richard directed it. Um, he took over the direction of it. It was shot in Israel. Um, and Romy Schneider was in it. And um, it was shot in Israel. And then he took over the directing. And then it came out. A sec- there was a second cut of it called The Hero. Um, but I think it kind of in Harris's canon of work, it, it it sort of sank without trace, really. But it was for us and for me, certainly um, at a time when I was kind of struggling with where I was going to go with law. And uh, mm. this seemed like, well, with God, this the man, here's the music business. <laughs> a door has opened and here's a career wrong. Uh, it was back to law <laughs> and back to study because really it, it um, because it, there was nothing to follow on. I mean, Harris, we wrote a few songs and they ended up on one one as a flip side of a single for Harris and one on an album. But really, there was no, unless I were going to really focus on following the career and just give up everything else, it wasn't going to happen. We're going to take a break, Bill, but just bringing one. Hi, Mary, my name is Bernie Connolly and I'm listening in Limerick and I'm now in my 90s. I worked in Bill Whelan's dad's shop and often helped Bill, then a small boy, with his homework. Oh my God. <laughs> I love live radio. Hi, Bernie. <laughs> Listen, we'll take a break. Join us in a few moments. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. 
Our text number is also 51551. You can email Miriam at rt.ie. I'm here this morning with a giant of the Irish music landscape. He's celebrated composer Bill Whelan, who has just published his autobiography, The Road to Riverdance. Listen, you then got into making commercials and recording music for commercials. Um, what was that like? Well, it was, um, you know, when you were a freelance musician uh, in Dublin, and this would have been in the 70s and 80s, um, it really was, commercials were great. I mean, I, Sean Davy and I used to have an office together, and Sean wrote a lot of very successful commercials. And, you know, you cut your teeth on these things. Not alone do you get paid better than anything else, but you also learn a lot. Um, so I did... Um, Lots of television commercials over the years. Um, uh, <laughs> I did. My, my son Brian tells me that when I did one, which was called Fifty Fifty Cashback, <laughs> which is I think for bored gosh, <laughs> and uh, and um, I'll never forget. He um, he he used to say that the kids in his class in school used to say Fifty Fifty. Your dad wrote that, uh, and <laughs> excuse me, it wasn't his. Um, uh, crowning glory uh, of a boast that one but um yeah i did a lot of a lot of television commercials and the thing is that they were really good payers you know and um and then you really got ex- some exciting projects and um you know like like the guinness project uh, the guinness big wave which was um which actually was a was a was a project which came out of a irish uh, um, advertising agency um but I, I knew we were in competition with a UK agency because they'd said to me that there's a UK agency who were also pitching for this and they have the Jerry Rafferty band and they'll play on the thing. So that was their mm-hmm. sort of... A, and then I thought about that and I thought, well, hang on, Jerry Rafferty's not going to sing a Guinness commercial. So he's talking about the musicians in the, in the Jerry Rafferty band. And then I thought about who's the most identifiable musician and that was the sax player on Baker Street. So uh, Hugh Murphy, who who produced Baker Street, had been working in Windmill Lane Studios. And I called him up and I said, look, um, I'm doing a television commercial in Ireland. He sa- I said, I'd love to use uh, whoever played the sax on Baker Street. He said, oh, you mean Raph Ravenscroft? And I said, yeah, my, OK, yeah. yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I said, do you have a contact for him? Sure, he said, he gave me his number and I called up Raph. And I said, hi, I've explained the situation. And I said, look, we're doing a commercial. Would you come and play sax on it? And I said, it's, 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 in, it's going to be in Dublin. He said, oh, Dublin. He said, wow, will it be a pint of Guinness? And I said, there certainly would. So he got on a plane and he came over. And that started a relationship that went on for quite a while. But, um, but it also was the soundtrack to an extraordinary commercial that was edited by James Morris at Windmill Lane. And in those days, you know, Windmill Lane was an extraordinary hub of creativity with film and you 2 were there. And, you know, <clears throat> I can't, you know, overstate what the, the influence that the, the formation of Windmill Lane and that whole hub of, of uh, recording and just as a place for people mm. to meet. And, and suddenly we, we had people coming in to record in Ireland, which we never really had. Let's listen now just to that memorable sure. commercial. Uh, let's listen to it. Oh, 
That was the Guinness ad, of course, from 1981, composed by you, Bill Wee, and you're smiling to yourself there. <laughs> Happy times, obviously, thinking it, of it. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great. And, they, you know, the, the guitar player there uh, who's played that solo is Des Moore. And he had this extraordinary instrument that we'd, we'd only just been introduced to called the Golden Throat, where there was a pipe that came out of the speaker into his mouth and he made a wah-wah sound. The Golden Throat, you don't see it that often these days, but he's... Mm. Um, Des is a brilliant, brilliant guitar player. So it was Des and, and uh, Raph and uh, myself on piano and Paul McAteer on drums. I think it was I think it was John Drummond on bass. It was. You yeah. were just talking there a minute yeah. ago about the significance of Windmill Lane, how important it was. And when you were there, of course, I think you also worked with Kate Bush. It like it brought people in as well, didn't it? Well, it did. I mean, you know, the the thing about you know, if you if if I look across the whole scope of my career. You know, up to that moment in the late 70s, we were basically an industry that made music for home consumption. So you had the show bands making records to promote the show band to fill the dance halls. And that was the kind of cycle. And it wasn't until, you know, the, the, the sort of groups started to appear, you know, like Thin Lizzy and stuff, that we saw a change in that. But, the, but they went abroad. You know, and they've, 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 they started their careers ultimately, you know, the real movement in their careers started abroad. Um, and, and that was the way the traffic went at that time. And then when Windmill came along uh, and we had the success of U2, uh, suddenly that traffic changed. And now instead of everybody having to go to England or, or to the US, um, they, they started coming to Ireland and, and people began to see that you could begin a career in this country and, and retain uh, a connection to this country without having to give everything away to a, a UK or an American record company. And of course, as I said, you worked with Kate Bush, you contributed to her albums, among them The Hounds of Love, which of course has had a, a renaissance lately with the success of Running Up That Hill. But on that album, the Irish influence is perhaps nowhere more evident, I think, Bill, than on Jig of Life. Tell me about recording that track. Yeah, well, uh, Kate, you know, I, I worked on three of Kate's albums and the first time that she came here, we met down in Clonbur. She had taken a cottage down in Clonbur and uh, we went down and spent a couple of days just talking about what we might do. And she had had her, her brother, um, uh, Paddy Bush, was very, very keen on Irish music, in fact, on all world music, and would have introduced Kate to people like, you know, the Trio Bulgarka, which I heard on um, uh, the Brendan Gleeson and... Um, the, Banshee the, of Inishie. Yeah, yeah, last night. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so um, the... the Sorry, I've lost my train there. We were talking about Jig yeah. of Life. Yeah, the Jig of yeah. Life. So we we talked about the music, and she had a big interest in, in, uh, in trad music, and uh, she said, well, look, who, who could we get to play? And then I had been working with uh, Liam O'Flynn and it was my early sort of connections to Planksty and i uh, been working with Liam and also with Sean Keane from the Chieftains. So the two of them came in and we had a great recording session in Dublin and, that's, uh, and that was the jig of life and it was the start of a relationship that went over three albums with Kate. Let's listen now to sure. Jig of Life. Yeah. Hello, old lady I know your face well I know it well She says, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na Be sitting in your mirror now Is the place where the crosswords meet Will you look into the future? Never, never say goodbye To my heart of your life 
Jig a Life there from Kate Bush, which you recorded, Bill Whelan. You also worked with the American composer Elmer Bernstein and you were both keen, I think, to promote Dublin as a place for recording film scores. Yeah. Were you successful in those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. It was That was another extraordinary period of uh, in recording, uh, in, in certainly in my career. Elmer Bernstein, Noel Pearson asked me to write uh, the Oriada um, to to reconstruct the Oria, the film music for the, his three films, Mishera, Tinevio and Sirsha. And he asked me to reconstruct the thing for a concert piece as part of the Oria, the celebrations in, in 1987. And um, I did that. I worked on that. And uh, Elmer Bernstein, uh, there was a classical night, a traditional night and a film night. There were three nights in the National Concert Hall, which is an amazing uh, event, actually, the whole thing. But um, he brought in his friend, Elmer Bernstein, his old friend, Elmer Bernstein, uh, to conduct the Aurea the pieces. So that started a, a, a friendship. Um, and he said to me, he said, you know, gosh, the, the standard of musicianship is really, really strong here. He, uh, he said, you know, all the American composers are going to Rome and they're going to Bulgaria and they're going elsewhere to record their scores because the American unions have made it prohibitive. Uh, so they're coming to Europe to record. He said, why don't we see if we can stop them off at Dublin? So I went to Windmill Lane and uh, spoke to Russ Russell and James Morris and the guys at Windmill Lane. And I said, look, could we make a video of the, uh, the orchestra working? And then I went, so we did. And uh, Donald Taylor Black directed it. And then we went to, um, I went to McCambridge's and I got brown bread. <laughs> and, uh, and we put it all on a plane and Elmer assembled an extraordinary bunch of composers, including people like Henry Mancini and stuff in, in California. And we flew out to California and we, we showed them the video, gave them brown bread and Guinness and talked about recording in Ireland. And that led to... An amazing we did by the time I Riverdance happened for me then mm. a few years after that. But by the time I left Irish film orchestras, we had do I'd set up this company called Irish Film Orchestras. And by the time I left, we had recorded 50 film scores, That's including cool. with people like Barry Manilow, who all came in, uh, Robert Redford, you know, it was an, the, all the Merchant Ivory films. It was an incredible time. And of course, the Dubliners, Bill, were of course among the many Irish acts you also produced. Tell me about recording, I think, their final album and the final song on that album, Song for Ireland with Luke. Yeah, Kennedy. that was a, it was a mix. There was a sweet sadness about that because, um, you know, uh, Luke Kelly was really not well at the time. And um, uh, he wanted to do very appropriately Song for Ireland. And um, <clears throat> so we went in the studio we were recording various other tracks with John Sheehan and Barney McKenna. You know, it was mm. the, it was the Dubners and, and Ronnie. And uh, we uh, Luke came in and we spent a whole day in the studio and we could only do it in bits because he really he was he was quite tired. Um, but he came in and he stuck with it and we recorded. This is the last thing that Luke recorded. Um, and a song very appropriately called A Song for Ireland it was his farewell, really. It's magnificent. Let's yeah. listen to that now, Bill. Living on your western shore Saw summer sunsets Asked for more I stood by your Atlantic sea 
And I sang a song for Ireland So beautiful, no one sings it like him No Yeah, you know, my dad said, I remember once when I was in the kitchen in Limerick, uh, Luke came on the radio and my dad said, oh, do you hear that fellow there? And I said, I do. He said, that's a man that can float a song. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. he floated yeah. that song. Yeah. Yeah. Loads of texts coming in. One before the break, I'll give you, Miriam, I saw Bill play Clifton Arts Festival before lockdown with fiddle player Cullen Mokinomra. That performance helped me through very dark times. Genuinely life affirming. Thank God for Bill and the music. Bill Greenham, we'll take a break. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Well, I'm here this morning with celebrated composer Bill Whelan on the publication of his autobiography, The Road to Riverdance. Right, Riverdance. Oh, yeah. How did it come about? <laughs> well, yeah, you've heard of it. When we first approached to do it and, and how? I remember it was in December uh, in 1993 and uh, Moya Doherty rang me and said, you know, would you fancy a cup of coffee? I have something I want to talk to you about. Mm. So um, I went, we met in Bagger Street in a, in a cafe in Bagger Street and she had been appointed the producer of the entire Eurovision because we had won the previous year and we had now had to present it this year. Of course, we won that year as well. So <laughs> I think all the Those all, were the, days. All the top brass yeah. in RT used to kind of groan every time we yeah. won. <laughs> Here we go again. But anyway, um, yeah, so we met in this cafe and she said, um, you know, she said, look, I want to do, I want you to do two pieces of music. One is for the opening which was a piece with Machnus, and they were, you know, they were filming a piece with Machnus, and the and the centerpiece, this, you know, which I had done before with Donalani when we did Time Dance in 1981, and um, so she said, oh, music for the centerpiece, and I have, you know, I we're going to do it in the Point Theatre, and um, I'd like it to be about Irish dance, and you know, before that I had done the Seville Suite, which had Irish dance and. Spanish dance in it and then I, I did the Spirit of Mayo which had the choir and the drummers and things so in the previous two years a lot of the elements that were to eventually appear in Riverdance had been seen so I, I suggested that that's where we go we go with this what I was familiar mm. with and I would started working with Anuna and I just loved what Anuna did and I just thought if we started this piece gently with the choir and then go on into then she men- mentioned that Michael Flatley and Jean Butler had both been seen in the Spirit of Mayo concert which John McCulgan directed um, and uh She's she she wanted to use the two of them mm. and a troupe of Irish dancers, so we started. I sat down and started to write it, and um, and we got into rehearsal just before Eurovision. Um, I had called it all the time Ishka Baha, um, the water of life, and um, and then I rang her one one day <laughs> and I said, "Moya, I've just had to rethink about the title," and she said, "Oh." Go ahead. I said, I'm thinking of calling it Riverdance. And she, you could hear her breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> oh, thank God. She said. Because, uh, you know, the, the foreign journalists are not going to have any fun with Ishka Baha. Um, so that was it. And if I recall correctly, um, Miriam, I think we were sitting almost beside each other for the first performance in The Point. Yeah, we, we were. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And um, and I'll never forget that night. Um, I mean, it changed everything, really, for all of us. 
uh, because it gave us a, 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 an understanding that we had done something, even though we had we knew that it was good as the rehearsals went on and we saw the dance troupe and the choreography come together with the music. Um, we knew it was good, but nothing prepared us for what actually happened on the night. And that was it. It was a turning point in all of our lives, actually, and in many people's lives that were involved in that early river dance and went on to when I wrote the full show mm. that went on into the full show and, you know, got married and did all kinds of things, you know, as a result of that connection. It's just so wonderful and successful. Your book is great. I loved it. It's a great read, actually. Why did you decide to write your memoir now? Well, um, you know, Denise, my wife, had been sort of saying to me for a while, she said, look, why don't you just, you know, write your memoir as as you saw it? Because, you know, I had no control over the PR of Riverdance, really. And she said, you should write it from as you saw it and and how, you ca- how it came together from your perspective. Uh, but also... For your grandchildren and your children, we have now have five grandchildren, by the way, um, uh, for, for write the story of your life so that they know what their granddad did. Um, and uh, so I did it and um, I loved doing it, actually. And um, uh, and here it is. You know, I got a lot of encouragement from Lilliput and um, and I had a great editor called Jen Brady. And and I sat down every day during covid and uh, and wrote it. Uh, it took me about six months to write, but I loved doing it. Yeah. Kept you busy. Yeah. Well, look, it's a great read. It's lovely to have you here this morning, Bill. And I've enjoyed so much chatting to you. The Road to Riverdance is published by Lilliput Press. And you're going to be in conversation with Fick No Brain On yeah. about your book and your career as part of the Dublin Book Festival. And that's going to happen on Saturday, November the 12th at 7pm. And tickets are available for that from the Dublin Festival website. We're going to listen to Riverdance in a moment, but I just want to thank today uh, the series producer is Cora Ennis, our broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, Sheila Neve Wheel was on sound. Thank you all so much for listening. We're going to go out now listening to Bill Whelan's Grammy Award winning score. This is Riverdance. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.